Thank you, Nathan. Well, good morning. We've had an opportunity now to sing hymns to God, to share in communion together before God. We've had an opportunity to pray to him, to hear his word read, and now we have a chance to hear from him. And that's the purpose of what we do next, is to open up his word and ask that he come, that Jesus come and be our teacher again. And so uh, welcome each of you who are here uh, in the auditorium, those of you who have joined us online, thanks for coming and for taking time now to hear Jesus teach. Uh, our minister, Tony Cloud, his wife, Nikki, are still traveling, and so for the last three weeks, and now today, the fourth week, we're going through a series uh, in his absence that's called, Who is Jesus? When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And we have heard from different individuals. Today, we're going to hear from Paul, and the place where we hear Paul's answer to that question, who do you say Jesus is, is found in Acts. And so uh, if you would take your Bible and find that book of Acts in the New Testament, and we'll be in chapter 9. Now the book of Acts is the fifth book in your New Testament. So remember the New Testament is about two-thirds of the way, maybe three-quarters of the way through your Bible. And there you'll meet four different books that are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those tell the story of Jesus, and then following John, right after John, is this book of Acts, which is a book of history, and talks about the history of the very first people who were assembled as Christians to follow Jesus, and we're going to be in that book of Acts uh, here today. The series started uh, several weeks ago, in which we were introduced to the disciples with Jesus, had gone on a field trip, or a retreat, if you will, up to the northern part of Israel, up into the area of Cana, of, uh, and, and actually above Cana, up to the northern part of Israel, to Caesarea Philippi, where as they're approaching that city, Jesus pulls the disciples aside and says, who do people say that I am? And remember, the disciples said, well, there's a lot of rumors going around. Some people say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Ezekiel, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at them and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter's answer. Peter said, we have become convinced that you are the Messiah. Remember, the Messiah is that anointed one who would come into the world to make the world right again. You are the son of the living God. Not the son of God like the emperor of Rome claims to be. Not the Lord of just an empire. You are the son of the living God the one who has control over all reality. And Jesus looks back at Peter and says, good answer, uh, blessed are you, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, you didn't learn that from another person. And then he says, it's upon that confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. Upon that confession, Jesus says, I will pull together my assembly, the church, And the gates of Hades, or you can interpret that as the gates of death, will not prevail against this group of people. And it's all based on that confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then we turn to Martha. And you remember Martha and Mary had a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus had died. Jesus went to when in essence was the funeral. And when he showed up, Martha meets Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, your brother will live again. And she says, I know in the resurrection at the last day, he will come back. And Jesus looks at her. I imagine him grabbing her by the shoulders and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And even and anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus looks at her and says, do you believe this? And you remember Martha's answer, the same one we heard from Peter. Yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You start to see the pattern here. Last week we turned to the book of John. And you remember John ends up writing the entire book of John, which is the we call the Gospel of John, as a way of introducing you to Jesus. And you remember after showing you all of the things that Jesus is able to do, or all the things that he did do, which John calls signs, at the end of the book, John says, look at all of these things that Jesus did, turning water into wine, taking bread and fish and multiplying it for people, uh, helping paralyzed individuals stand and walk, blind people, giving them the ability to see, and then raising Lazarus from the dead, and then finally dying for your sins and being raised from the dead. John says, look at all of those signs, and the reason that I'm presenting them to you is so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you find life in his name. Do you see the pattern? It's what Peter had come to the conclusion of. It's what Martha, Mary, and of course others concluded. It's what John wants you to conclude that he concluded. Everybody seems to be saying the same thing. People who met Jesus, who followed Jesus, are saying and want you to know that he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. The way we might say that in a modern context is that Jesus is the one who's anointed by God to make the world right again. And Jesus is the one who has the power, who is the power, the ultimate control over everything in all of creation. He is the one who holds that sovereign power. Do you believe this? Well, today we turn to one other person at the end of this series, and that's going to be Saul of Tarsus to see what was Saul's conclusion. Now, it's a little bit cheating because I bet you know what Saul's going to conclude, but I want you to see it, and I want you to see the context in which you hear Saul's answer to this question, who is Jesus? Now, you may have heard of Saul of Tarsus. He's also in your Bible known as Paul or the Apostle Paul. Saul is his Hebrew given name. Paul is his kind of Greek name. Saul grew up in this town called Tarsus. He was a young Hebrew boy born there. His family didn't live there too long, but it's important to know that Tarsus was a very important educational center. Tarsus was a center not only of Jewish education, but also of the Stoic philosophies of ancient Greece. And so Paul would have been born at a time and in a place where he would have been exposed to the ancient histories of Judaism and also the more recent histories of Hellenized Greek culture. And he, this explains why later uh, you see Paul able to go toe-to-toe with the Stoics and the Epicureans and others in the modern culture and then turn the corner and walk into a synagogue and know fully and speak with authority about the history of Judaism. He grew up in both worlds. But he advanced so much when he was a young boy uh, here in Tarsus that they ended up moving him to Jerusalem. By the way, this is a street still in Tarsus. This might have been a street that Paul walked, that walked down. And I'll show you several of these pictures because I want you to understand that what you hear from Saul comes from someone who actually lived, 
who who walked these streets that you will see, who lived in a very real period of time. These aren't fanciful stories or made-up stories or legends or fables that are meant to have a point. These are about a person who struggled with many of the same things that you struggle with. Paul grew up in Tarsus. Again, you see the street here in Tarsus. That's where he learned to write his alphabet, not the alphabet, but in Hebrew would be called the alphabet. And that's where he first started to study Judaism. He advanced so much. In fact, in his studies, he would have been that, that one kid who's top of the class. The, the one kid who broke the curve, you know, the, the one kid who always could go up to the board and write the letters just right, and not just write the letters, he could recite scripture just right. And even at a young age was able, most likely, to be able to recite not just his favorite verses, but recite entire chapters and entire books. And he advanced so much that when they moved to Jerusalem, he ended up being promoted in his class to be able to study under one of the greatest teachers of the time, named Gamaliel. And so you can imagine this man, Saul, who is advancing in Judaism, and we're told later that he was quite the rock star. I mean, if you were a young kid and said, I want to be like that Pharisee when I grow up, you would have a poster of Paul, you know, on your, on your wall. Paul was the, was the example of what it meant to be a young and upcoming Pharisee. Now, back then, there were different factions uh, of Judaism. Uh, Pharisees were one of those. If you could turn religious uh, and theological positions into political parties, that's sort of what these might have looked like. That's not an exact comparison. But there were people called Sadducees and Essenes. And then you had this group called the Pharisees. Paul was one of these Pharisees. And what you need to know about the Pharisees is they took God's word seriously. So serious, in fact, that they would defend it. In some cases, to the point of putting others to death. Paul, as he advanced through his studies in Judaism, went far beyond others. He would have known again, memorized, prayerfully memorized, and even stated every day or or recited every day entire books of what you call the Old Testament. So if you look back on that, that large part of your Bible, that's not just there to give extra weight, you know, when you come come in. That those, those books, Genesis, all the way through Malachi, are there for a reason. Paul would have memorized many of those books. And so on any given day, he would, he would recite the book of Ezekiel. And there he would prayerfully contemplate what that was like for Ezekiel to, to in a vision, see into heaven and see these very strange animals and these strange wheels within a wheel and all these things moving. And then to imagine what it was like for Ezekiel to see the brightness of the glory of God. And then for God to look at Ezekiel and say, you will be my watchman over all of what I say to make sure the people hear it. And whether they They treat you well or not, whether they receive your word or not, they will know that a prophet has been among them because you speak with my authority. And so Paul would imagine, what's that like to speak with God's authority in his word and to stand in his presence? Paul would not just know a few of the stories from the book, let's say, of Daniel. He would he would recite prayerfully that entire book. And he would come to chapter 7 in Daniel, and he would recite what that was like for Daniel to have his dream and to see all these different animals that were coming and the animals that represented different kingdoms, where there would be the the Babylonian kingdom and then the 
Medo-Persian kingdom and then the Greek kingdom and then this Roman kingdom or empire and then at the end of all of that would become God's kingdom. And he would imagine what that was like for Daniel to be able to see into the heavens. And what Daniel tells us in Daniel 7 is to look into the heavens and see there one who looks like the Son of Man standing in the presence of the Almighty God, the Ancient of Days. And Paul would prayerfully imagine what that was like. Well, my point in all that is to say that was a typical day for Paul, would be to go through and to prayerfully contemplate these scriptures. He would know the law forward and backward to be able to recite every single one of those laws that you read in the Old Testament. He would know and be well grounded in the the story of the Exodus and how God's presence came in the tent to be among the people. And Paul would not only be able to teach that and explain that, he would defend that story that you read in the Old Testament of how God would one day come back and restore his kingdom and hand it to his holy ones. And Paul, as a Pharisee, would have seen himself as being one of those holy ones of God. It was their job to defend and preserve the word of God so that when God came, when his Messiah came, that anointed one who would make the world right again, he would find this group of people, these Pharisees, who had preserved his word and been his holy ones. And so Paul wanted to be one of those. And they did not tolerate for one second anyone who claimed to own that story or be a part of that story and yet act in a way that wasn't in line with what they taught. They were so serious about pleasing God that if somebody claimed that they saw God or followed God, but did not hold everything they read in the Old Testament, that person would be arrested, be taken out of public view, and in some cases killed. And that's exactly what you read in the book of Acts back in chapter 7, is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave an assignment to a group of people to go throughout the world and preach the good news. And so churches started coming up. These assemblies of people who were following Jesus came up all over Israel and were starting to spread even outside of Jerusalem. And the work got to be so much that they had to appoint certain deacons. This is a side story. But uh, Stephen was one of these very first servants whose job it was to make the assembly work and function so that they could they could assemble and worship, but also take what they had and then share it with the community and the poor in the community. And so one of Stephen's jobs was to do that. But Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, and he was speaking as if he not only knew these scriptures, he spoke as if he knew the one who gave these scriptures. And they accused him of blasphemy. And so in chapter 7, they drag him in front of the council, the Sanhedrin, and there before all of these Pharisees, he has to give a defense. And if you want a Cliff Notes version of the entire Old Testament, Acts chapter 7 is a quick review uh, because uh, Stephen, in a very short way, basically goes through all you need to know from the the Old Testament. Not all you need to know, but he goes over the, the highlights or the high points of what you read in the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, going through Isaac and Jacob and all, you know, of the church, or excuse me, those early uh, fathers of Judaism. And and then he, he, bring, he brings you through the Exodus and then even to David and the building of the temple. And at the end of all that, Stephen makes a comment in which he says, it's amazing to me that every time someone 
speaks on behalf of God, every time someone is sent to you by God, you kill him. And at that, they become angry because they realize what he's saying. He says, you did that with the righteous one, meaning Jesus. And they, in their form, when they got really angry, they would gnash their teeth and rip their clothes. It's kind of a strange thing to do, but they would do that. They got very angry at him. And then Stephen says something that you just don't say. He looks up and he tells the people what he's seeing. Stephen looks up in front of this council and he says, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, every Pharisee in that room would immediately know what he was saying. He is claiming to be having the same vision that Daniel mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. I look up and I see him. And every good Pharisee would say, that is blasphemy. You are not Daniel. You are not the prophet sent by him. Stephen was just being honest. That's what I'm seeing. And he shares that with the council. They considered that blasphemy. And one of the penalties for blasphemy was capital punishment. And so do you know what they did with Stephen? They dragged him outside of the city. And there they stoned him to death. And do you know who was in charge of making sure it was done correctly? It was Saul. Saul of Tarsus was there to watch the coats of people. But what that means is he was in charge of the affair. He was the one to make sure that it happened. And on that day, a great persecution breaks out. And they go all over the known world to find, arrest, and in some cases kill the Christians. And Saul was in charge of that. In fact, here's Saul, the rock star of Pharisaic Judaism, who is the one who was sent out by the chief priests to get this job done. And on one of those trips, Paul goes to the high priest and he asks for a letter to go to a place called Damascus. Now that's a long way to get to our passage today, but here we are in Acts chapter 9 and let's see what happens. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. Do you know that's what we were first called? Whenever there was an assembly of people who followed Christ, they were called uh, members of the way. And that included these first synagogues. These are Jews who recognized that Jesus was the end of their story. And so Paul said, I want to go and find them so that if I find anyone who belongs to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And you have to wonder if what came to Paul's mind at that moment was not that vision of Ezekiel being surrounded by the light of the glory of God when Ezekiel falls to his knees and gets asked, what will you do for me as my watchman? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Notice Jesus doesn't give him his marching orders right away. Jesus does what he does with all of us. 
He gets your attention. And then he says, when the time is right, I will give you your assignment. Some people have called this the conversion of Saul. Uh, The better word here is the commissioning of Saul. Saul's not converted in the sense that he was a Jew and he's going to become a Christian. What you see playing out here is Saul realizing that the end of everything that he studied, of everything that he's pursued, of everything that he fights for, the end of that is this one who appears to be the son of man standing in front of him, and it's his voice that he hears. But the light is so bright that he can't see. So the men traveling with Saul stood there. They were speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand on into Damascus. So he gets to go. He makes it into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. And so Paul makes his way into Damascus. You can imagine what that was like for three days to be uh, there when your whole world is shattered. Where for his whole life, he has pursued God and he realizes he is not the zealous honored holy one of God he has just been shown that he is a murderer of everything that God is doing in the world to make the world right again that the very one that they have been waiting for 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 a thousand years was was the one they had killed and Paul you can imagine his world shattered and he doesn't eat or drink for three days do you know we know we know where he stayed during this time in Damascus We're told in the following verses that while Jesus left Paul (laughs) to go into Damascus, uh, he he goes, God connects with uh, Ananias. Uh, This is not Ananias and Sapphira that you read about uh, earlier. This is Ananias, the well-respected Jew from Damascus, who was a follower of the way. And God gets his attention and says, I need you to go on an assignment. I want you to go down to Straight Street and find the house of Uh, a man named Judas. And there in the house of Judas is a man named Saul. Do you know you can still go to Straight Street? This is a picture of Straight Street back around 1900. Now there's portions of it that are covered by this, you know, long portico. Uh, But there in Damascus is a street. It was actually built on, uh, Damascus was designed on a grid. So there are a lot of straight streets, but this is the longest. It's about a mile long, goes through the street. You can still walk down that street. Some people claim it's the oldest inhabitable and used street in the entire world ever ever built and again you can still go walk down that same street that Paul walked down being led to the house of Judas and somewhere on that street is where Paul stayed and Ananias was selected to go and heal Paul and tell him about his commission in fact God tells that uh and that well in the next verse let's read what God tells to Ananias, Lord, Ananias answered, arguing with God a little bit, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument, or some of your versions may say my chosen vessel. Kind of imagine a a vase meant to carry something precious. He is the one chosen to carry my name to the Gentiles, their kings, and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so uh, Saul becomes a Christian, just like you. He, after his life fell apart, you might say, it came back together again. And he chose to follow Jesus. And he was baptized, just like you you may have been, in this very water. And he followed, that day became a follower of Christ. And look what he did next. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues, those places he went with his letter. But he began to preach now that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Did you catch his answer? Who is it that Saul of Tarsus came to see that Jesus was? If Jesus looked at Saul and said, who do you say that I am? Saul ends up arguing there in Damascus. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. Now, why does that matter to you? When I was uh, when I was in college, my wife and I had a, a friend, still have a, a good friend, Mike uh, Miller, who a hilarious guy, and he'd come over for lunch one afternoon, and we got to uh, kind of bantering back and forth about just funny thoughts. And, and Mike raised this interesting question. He said, "Can you imagine what it would have been like if Dr. Seuss had been a theologian? <laughs> can you can you imagine what the sermons would have been like?" Or the books, you know, that would have been written. Now, nothing that I say next was in, endorsed in any way by the original Dr. Seuss, <laughs> Theodore Giesel. But we sure had a lot of fun that afternoon thinking about, you know, the Grinch that stole Christmas. The Grinch, that would be the devil. That's pretty easy. Thing one and thing two, you know, maybe that's James and John. Uh, you could pick uh, two people there. The uh, Yertle the Turtle. You remember the story about the turtle that wanted to be on top of everything? You know, that would be Nebuchadnezzar or maybe Pharaoh. You know, be the, So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great theology <laughs> there in Dr. Seuss. Well, we went back and forth. And then we came to Green Eggs and Ham. And, and we said, oh, I know what that story would be about Saul of Tarsus, uh, called Saul I Am. And you know what came out of that? It was an actual poem. You want to hear it? I do not like that Christian man. I do not like him, Saul I am. I do not like the things they wrote. I do not like them in a boat. I do not like them here nor there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like them, can't you see? So I'm off to Damascus with my decree. Then came a flash from in the sky that bends the knee and blinds the eye. What is this light? I cannot stand. Who art thou, Lord? cried Saul, I am. I am the one you persecute. Now stand right up and don't refute. I have new plans I've laid for you, a path that's straight and a heart that's new. So Saul became a Christian man, changed his name to Paul, I am. He preached the word and made his stand, and he forever thanked the great I am. And that's what came out that day. Yeah, you like that? Again, uh, nothing about that poem has been endorsed by the actual Dr. Seuss, but it makes a good point. And that point is this. When you read the story of Saul of Tarsus, 
who was called by God to follow Jesus, he was given an assignment. And this is where it applies to you. Everything about what Paul would eventually teach points back to who he believed Jesus was. Do you realize that Saul, did you see this in the passage? He was given the assignment to make sure that you knew who Jesus was. That's the job God gave him. Of all the people in the world, God selected someone who absolutely knew and took seriously God's story in human history. He chose him to be the one who brings this good news and explains it to you. And that's important for you to know. That when you read the teachings of Paul, you're not just reading somebody's opinion. You're not just reading Paul kind of writing about uh, what his truth is. He's writing, he's writing to you out of his responsibility given to him by God to make sure that you knew who Jesus was and that you have a chance to follow him. And that's exactly what Paul ends up doing. A major part of your New Testament is made up of things that Paul wrote for you to hear. And so as you go through the rest of your New Testament, you're going to see a list of letters. And most of these are letters, they're very personal letters. They're written by Paul to a group of people. Paul would end up going on three different major trips around the Mediterranean at that time. And he, along with other helpers, people like Barnabas and, and Silas and Timothy and Titus and Philemon uh, and, and women who helped out like Phoebe or Priscilla and Aquila, uh, all of them would go into these places and they would pull together an assembly of people who would be followers of Christ. And eventually Paul would write letters back to each of these places where churches had been established. And so I bet you can guess what the names of some of those letters are. These are some of the places that Paul went. If there was a church in Rome, guess what the letter to Rome was called? Romans. Yeah. If there's a letter to Corinth, there's actually two in your New Testament. It's going to be first and second Corinthians. If it's a letter written to Thessalonica, it'll be first and second Thessalonians. If it's written to Philippi, we'll call it Philippians. If it's to Ephesus, it's called to the Ephesians or the Galatians or the Colossians. You see the point. These letters that were in your New Testament are actually letters written to people just like you who were assembled in their city. And this, in every one of those letters, you get to see Paul passing on to them the good news. And they're intensely practical. These books uh, that Paul wrote about how do you follow Christ in your day and time? What does it mean in 2021 here in your city to take seriously that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That he is the Messiah? What does that mean? How does that play out? What does a group of people look like who are following him? And that's what you read in each of those, each of those letters. Um, we don't have much time left here, but let me just read, if I can, a few excerpts. So imagine a buffet table out here, and that buffet table not covered with food, but all of Paul's writings. I'm just going to go through some of these letters that Paul wrote, and let me just give you little one-liners and see if you don't recognize some of these. I uh, picked these out as just some of my favorites. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
How about this? Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. How about Romans 8.31? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or how about further in Romans 8? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How about Romans 13.1? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist must be instituted by God. How about Romans 13.6? This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. How about Romans 13.8? Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves Another has fulfilled the law. How about the letter to Corinthians, chapter 13? So now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 14, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10. Intensely practical advice for the family. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.22. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6.1 Unless you think that Paul was racist or chauvinist or misogynist, you have to answer Galatians 3.27 For as many of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then turn over to Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, give request to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. More advice from Philippians. Chapter 4, 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Or then turn to 1 Thessalonians. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then Paul writing a personal note to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share, 
And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Back to Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Before I read this last verse, let me just give it its context. I just did something that makes me cringe. We went on a biblical scavenger hunt through a bunch of verses. They're favorite verses of mine. You can imagine these printed on posters and embroidered on, you know, uh, uh, blankets or something, you know, or written in emails. These are your favorite verses. But it's wrong to read these out of context. These are just verses that are in the midst of a larger message. Every one of these verses comes from a letter, and you're intended to read those letters from start to finish, just as they were written to the very first churches. And so if you have a favorite verse, it's important from time to time to go back and read the whole letter in which it was was written. But as you read these statements that come from Paul, do you know that in each of those letters you're going to find a common pattern? And here's the pattern. In every one of those letters, Saul of Tarsus is going, and somewhere in that letter, to remind you of who is the Messiah and who is the Son of God. He points you back to Jesus. And all of this great advice, all of these instructions that he gives, are meaningless unless they are tied back to that one point, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And in every one of his letters, he makes that point. And so here's an example of that where in 1 Corinthians he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is named for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He then appeared to James... Then to the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, Paul says, he also appeared to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Well, the point of today's lesson is really this. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter gave his answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He asked Martha, do you believe this? She said, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. If you ask John, who is Jesus? He says, well, I wrote the whole book to make sure you knew that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And if you ask Saul, who is Jesus? What does he say? You need to know from the very first sermon that Saul ever gave, the very first lesson he ever taught after becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ was this message, that Jesus is the Son of God. And he argued that he is the Messiah. So what does that mean to you? We'll finish this series by just allowing Jesus to turn back to you and pose the question to you. As he did to the disciples, what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? This makes all the difference in the world. And this is why Paul brings you back to that. With all all the teaching about what it means to follow Jesus, it's tied back to what you believe about Jesus. And once you come to understand the firm conviction that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one that God is using to make the world right again, 
and you understand that Jesus is the sovereign power over all reality, it affects every part of your life. It affects your work. It affects your school. It affects what you do in your relationships. It affects how you handle things in your marriage. It affects your future plans, your purchasing patterns, your choice of entertainment. It affects your political participation. It affects your response to public health emergencies and safety concerns. It affects how you conduct your worship. It affects your service here in Anchorage. It affects your care for the poor. And overall, it affects your prayers. For what do you pray when you realize that the one to whom you are praying is the anointed one of God, connecting with you because you, just like Ananias, just like Saul, just like John and Martha, Mary, just like Peter, all those disciples, that you, in line with all of those people who passed on those letters that they first received to you, just like all of those people, you, in this place and time, are the ones through whom God is making the world right again. And what does that do to your prayers when you realize that the one that you're talking to, the one to whom you pray for help and guidance, is the one who is sovereign, who is the sovereign power over all reality? What happens in your life when you come to the firm conviction that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God? Well, I'm going to leave that with you. And my hope is this week that you'll allow that to play out and allow that to be at the forefront of your mind as you read your scripture, as you say your prayers, and as you go about every single day, the things that you're doing every day, that you'll take time to pause and and remember and reflect that you are here in this place and time, not on accident, but as a servant and a follower of the sovereign power over all the universe, and that that is Jesus. Let's think about that now and share our prayers together as we stand and sing.